0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us uh, yet again for a convergence special event with Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Investment Partners. Uh, we had uh, this event, uh, we, we, this event took place a couple weeks ago, where Jeff uh, blew us away with uh, some of the details relating to the repo markets and. Uh, and there were more questions than we could actually click through. So what we've done here is we have um, we have accumulated the questions that we're not uh, repeating. We've sent them to Jeff. We've set this time for Jeff to go through uh, these questions and explain in further detail those areas of interest to, to those attendees. And uh, we have about approximately uh, 20, 21, 22 questions that are preset. Um, but uh, today, really, we want to re- reintroduce Jeff uh, and then get into addressing the questions we couldn't answer last time. Please hold your questions. Uh, you, you can ask a question using the chat panel in front of you, but hold your questions until the end. We are, will not be able to parse through them while the session is ongoing. I want to remind everyone that Derivatives trading is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. The opinions that Jeff is bringing are his own. And uh, just do your own uh, due diligence before investing uh, using any of his opinions. Jeff, uh, as a reminder, is uh, head of uh, global research at Alhambra Investment Partners. Um, You you know, you see the slide in front of you. This uh, This is a repetition of what we did last time. Uh, he's a frequent guest on Macro Voices podcast and a frequent contributor to Seeking Alpha. We will jump right in here, Jeff. I uh, hope you can hear me. I can hear you, Morad, and I'm ready to go. Excellent. So let's clear up some of these questions. Yeah. So the first one we have here is how large is the repo market approximately?
1: The actual answer is nobody knows.
0: Because <laughs> these the, sort you know, of loans, right? Uh, there. The, the, Happen off- right. They're
1: interbank collateral loans, and there's a couple different kinds of repo repo transactions. There's something called trilateral, which is what takes place uh, in the visible market where um, borrowers and collateral providers and cash lenders all get together through a third-party custodian, and the custodian matches lenders with collateral and all that other all good stuff. And then there's something called bilateral repo, which is just a couple of banks out there in the in the world wanted to do a collateralized interbank transaction, and they get together and do a, a bilateral bespoke thing and It never really shows up on anything anywhere other than the bank books at the end of the quarter so we don 't really know how big the repo market is you 'll see estimates of you know daily transaction volume of two to four trillion, um, and those are probably low. And uh, when you get into the shadow stuff, the bilateral stuff, it's probably much, much more than that. So we're we're talking at the low end, two to four trillion, and and maybe upwards of five, six, seven, maybe even ten trillion. And again, it's you think it's we should be able to figure this stuff out, or somebody should have a handle on it, but we really don't.
0: Right. This is paper that's unaccounted for in a way. Is it totally at the lender's discretion as to what collateral they accept on a given day, or for a given transaction?
1: Sure, there are covenants that take place with some of the more sophisticated repo transactions, but by and large, that's it's really, you know, if you're doing an overnight trade and you're just rolling every day, you're kind of at the mercy of the the cash provider if they decide they want to accept your collateral on the on the next day. So if if you see the market starting to get a little iffy, you should better be
0: prepared for your collateral, cha- uh, your collateral factors to change. Right. So if the assets you're putting up as collateral is, uh, you, you know, you own a whole bunch of oil, for example, in the last month. If that goes down the uh, the toilet, then you might find that you're not able to get that uh, uh,
2: refi yeah, or
0: repo done. You're
1: uh, going to pick up the phone in the morning and your repo counterpart is say, don't even put up that oil paper. I don't want it. <laughs> you better right. give me something out,
0: so you're done. In fact, I'll pay you to keep it <laughs> like, like yeah. they did with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very cool. Uh, one side of a repo is described as cash. What precisely is meant by cash? What is the borrower getting?
1: Yeah, the scare quotes are appropriate here because we're not talking about stacks of uh, Federal Reserve notes. You know, there's no paper bills going back and forth. It's, it's cash in the the equivalent sense of the word. It's it's, it's a it's a, uh, a, de- a deposit balance at the even if it's triparty custodian repo, then the triparty uh, custodian provides you the cash balance on their books. And if it's bilateral bespoke, bespoke, it's you know, whatever cash balance you're going to open on uh, the your counterparty's book. So it's it's a cash equivalent, which is
0: a computer ledger balance. Hmm. Okay. If the borrower defaults, is the lender required to sell the security the next day, or can they hold it for longer?
1: No, it, you know, it, it's it's it, this is the key key question right here because they're not required to do anything with it. Um, they have right to seize the ownership of the asset that's been pledged to them, but once they once they seize the asset, what they do with it is completely at their own discretion. But therein lies the problem. Once you own the asset, if it's a junk asset, the last thing you want to do is be left holding it. And so repo counterparties on the cash side are always on the lookout to not be stuck with collateral that they don't want. Um, and you know, there's a back in 2007, the early part of the crisis. Just to, to digress a little bit here. Um, one of the first, the, the early lessons for the repo market and why the repo market was such a major problem in the first global financial crisis was, I believe it was Merrill Lynch who seized collateral from, you know, people probably remember hearing something about these two Bear Stearns hedge funds that were involved in subprime mortgages that was, you know, one of the first names that popped up in the early part of the crisis. And in August of 2007, I think it was Merrill Lynch, I'm going off memory, um, they seized repo collateral. And they found, well, you know, we don't want this stuff because it was what they call toxic waste at the time. And they tried to auction it off and they couldn't find any takers for that for that collateral that they seized from the Bear Stearns hedge funds. I remember so it was that. a very yeah, it was a very poignant upfront lesson about, you know, don't even get into a situation where you have to seize collateral. Because if you do, you might not find any you, you might not be able to sell the collateral the, when you want to anyway. So it's you know, this question is perfect because
0: you don't even want to get into that position. Right. Okay. Uh, is 100% of collateral returned on repayment of cash, or is this less the haircut? No, the, you never, if you're posting collateral and getting cash, you never
1: lose title to the assets. You're pledging the collateral that can be seized in the event that you default on the cash, but you still own the assets technically. So whatever you've pledged will be returned
0: to you. Mm. Okay. Are there other commissions or fees that are paid by the lender to participate in the repo market? There's a zoo
1: of fees and commissions all throughout this whole thing. You know, as we got into the more complicated stuff of, you know, securities lending and repledging, you know, you're paying a fee for every little service that takes place that's usually in the form of a spread. Even on a basic repo transaction, um, you know, I'm giving you cash and uh, when I give you cash back in the morning when the repo trade uh, unwinds itself, I'm giving you cash plus a little interest. So there's always interest, there's always fees, there's always spreads involved because nobody, especially on Wall Street, nobody works for free.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if somebody's taking a risk, they need to be paid for that. Otherwise, it's not worthwhile.
1: Right. And it's a dynamic situation where those fees and spreads can go up and down, too. It could be one of those things where you expect if I'm borrowing treasuries from an insurance company through a dealer, if it gets to be if the dealer perceives it's risky or the insurance company perceives it to be a risky situation, they're going to up their fee. You know, if right. they perceive it to be even riskier, they're going to they're going up more return. And so you have to factor these kinds of sc- these scenarios in when you're borrowing cash for collateral, when you're posting. Coll- I mean, there's a number of different decisions that go into getting these repo transactions to actually work.
0: OK, what is the purpose or in what situation would a hedge fund approach a dealer bank for an overnight loan? Well, a hedge fund doesn't want to put up its own money
1: for its portfolio of positions. Uh, the, whole, the whole point of repo here, especially from the hedge fund perspective, is funding leverage. You want to be able to, to lever up your returns as much as and the repo market offers the cheapest, most in most cases, most reliable form of financing. So if you have a portfolio position, let's say $100 of all sorts of securities, you know, you put up maybe five dollars of your own, and then you throw the you 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 borrow funds in the repo market for the other ninety-five dollars, so that you can reduce your funding costs down to the absolute minimum in order to absolutely maximize your leverage returns. So the purpose is
0: essentially leverage. That makes sense. When a hedge fund is borrowing from the dealer bank, is it correct to say that they are assuming all of the liability for the transaction? Uh, the, the wording is a little ambiguous there. Is it correct to say that the, who's assuming the liability for the transaction? Um, the dealer bank, I'm assuming. Well, okay,
1: let's, let's, the dealer bank has some liability, and the liability happens when they seize collateral, when they're forced to seize collateral. But I, I, on the other side of it, the hedge fund that's, that's borrowing uh, through the dealer bank or from the dealer bank is, is responsible for its cash obligation. And absent the, uh, you know, if it defaults on the cash loan, even on an overnight basis, it, has, it realizes the collateral is going to be seized from it.
0: Okay. What happens if the dealer bank goes bust? What recourse does a hedge fund have? <laughs> well, then now, you're back the money. now you're explaining. <laughs> now you're explaining Lehman Brothers. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and Bear Stearns to Les, You know, that's there was all sorts of, and it gets even more complicated when you get into the derivatives that go along with this stuff. But essentially, um, collateral because it's such a fluid situation. A lot of times, what happened, especially in these, you know, the banking crisis part of 2008 and 2009, was you know what happens to a bank that goes bust that has um, borrowed collateral you know, where does that belong? And, and, you know, repo was supposed to be bankruptcy proof. I mean, that was the whole point of a lot of the standardization that took place in the 80s and, and earlier was to make sure that, you know, no matter what happened to the bank, that the collateral would be clear and free and everybody would know what was what, you know. So if, you're, if you default on the cash, the, the, the title to the ownership of the collateral goes to the surviving counterparty. But when you get into the situation of securities lending, especially through, you know, what AIG was doing, it gets a hell of a lot more complicated, and so you know I can't really answer this question because it's it's almost like a case by case basis. It's it's not as easy as it sounds like it should be, which is one of the reasons why you know the repo market seized up because everybody had assumed that everybody knew what everybody got in the case of a default. But what we found out was that you know the the lines of ownership and technical uh, you know uh, title were not so bright and clear as everybody hoped that they that they
0: were. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds really messy. Um, what causes the dealers to adjust their positions and balance sheet during quarterly cal- calendar bottlenecks, such as in September 2019, March 2020, as well as going back to March 2008 and September 2008 during Lehman AIG crises? This is basically what you were talking about just now. Uh, but what causes these le- dealers to adjust their positions and balance sheet?
1: Well, the basic proposition is just simple window dressing. So it's, in other words, you know, Um, I think people might remember something called Repo 105, which is one of the things that, you know, that happened. Banks were trying to uh, uh, massage their numbers, let's say, to put it terribly. In other words, there's there's always this this impetus to kind of uh, obscure what actually is going on in the real world marketplace at any period when you actually have to report to the public or to any regulatory body. So that's just you know basic window dressing now why is it so much more severe and so much bigger of a problem in september and in march um there's any number of reasons and it's not exactly clear what they are you know what's the what's the real reason why march is so bad and september is so bad september historically going back to you know the earliest part i mean even back to the 19th century why were uh, crashes always in october for example there's, there is a deeply embedded seasonal flow to the monetary system that still remains even to this day. I mean, just think about the Christmas spending holiday. You know, one of the earliest jobs of the Federal Reserve back in the you know, early 1900s was to make sure there was enough cash in the system so that, you know, shoppers could go shopping for Christmas. And so those kinds of things still are embedded deep in the system, and they still cause problems at these specific points, even if we can't exactly say, you know, why is March – one of the biggest problems. Why is September one of the biggest problems? I mean, there's other factors like, you know, corporate tax payments and the government's treasury cash needs that drains further liquidity. There's all sorts of things that happen, but March and September, those are the big quarter bottlenecks.
0: Why is the Fed knowingly financing speculative hedge funds if it knows that is how collateral is being used?
1: I'm not sure I understand that question because I, I don't think the Fed would agree with the proposition here that the Fed is 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 financing hedge funds because in uh everything that the Fed does, and I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna stick up for Jay Powell here, but uh technically everything the Fed does is at arm's length. It deals with dealer banks only. It's not it's not providing it's not providing direct assistance to hedge funds to do risky, levered up transactions. So um that's not what's going on. And, and, you know, I mean, you can make the argument, argument that it's indirectly happening that the Fed, by taking in collateral from the dealers, is essentially indirectly funding risky positions. And, you know, Jay Powell might even agree with that proposition. But in, in any technical uh, sense, th-
0: th- these are always arm's length transactions. Well, but yeah, there's a kind of an indirect correlation between when the Fed started pumping, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars into that market uh, starting September 2019 and how that translated into uh, the, you know, the stock indices and so on. So I think that's where they may be getting that. Um, yeah, I, mean, more, I would argue that that's more psychological than anything because, I mean, look what happened in March.
1: The Fed was still, quote unquote, pumping things into the economy, which it wasn't, by the way. It was not pumping anything into the economy. And yet the market tanks. And here we are with, you know, you know, multi-trillion expansion of the Fed's balance sheet since March and the stock market is still, what, 20% below its high, 15% below its high, whatever it is. So, I mean, there is no direct correlation. People think there's a direct correlation. The Jay Powell wants you to believe there's a direct correlation, but there really isn't. And so, you know, the Fed isn't pumping liquidity into the economy. It's making an exchange with dealer banks and hoping that people make that connection for themselves.
0: Okay, so given that the second part of the question is a really moot point, because the Fed is not interacting directly with these speculative funds you no know, and it's
1: not even, it's not even it 's not even engaged with the repo market, even those repo operations were not actually repo market operations; they mimicked a repo transaction, but they had no direct connection to the repo market. They were only liquidity auctions that were available to the twenty four primary dealers and those alone. What the Fed hoped would happen was that by offering the, the 20, 24 primary dealers the, op, the opportunity to bid for bank reserves, that the 24 primary dealers would then take those bank reserves and, and, and use them in the repo market. So it was, it was already, a, you know, one, one step removed as it was. Again, Arms Lakes transaction running and funneling everything through
0: the repo or uh, through the re- primary dealer network. Got it. Okay, beyond the primary dealers, where's the more than 500 billion thrown at the repo market actually going? I don't think it's going anywhere. <laughs> As we saw <laughs> in
1: March. You know, it didn't matter it didn't matter what the Fed did once once the situation became illiquid across all of its dimensions including repo collateral, uh the, you know, that's what you know, remember that one Sunday when the Fed un, uh, announced its um, QE forever and and uh you know, unlimited quote unquote repo auctions. And what happened the next day? We had one of the biggest crashes in market history. So, you know, the Fed is just creating balance sheet bank reserves. That's all it's doing. It's not pumping anything anywhere. It's, It's offering what is essentially an asset swap across multiple dimensions, but it's basically the same game plan. The idea is to get people to believe that it's creating liquidity when all it is doing is just moving some stuff around.
0: It sounds like uh, an accountant's journal entry or whatever it's called, where you just, you know, uh, an accrual or something, where you're just adding, putting a number in a column and offsetting it in another column and saying, there, it's done. Is that yep, kind it's a of-
1: double. That's all it is. That's all central bank accounting is. It's a double book entry. and uh, So the, the remainder on the other side from the asset purchase or the repo operation or the overseas dollar swap, no matter what the Fed does, the liability to the Fed is a remainder called bank reserves. That's all it is. The fact that it's, that it's treated as base money in some of these monetary calculations is meaningless. I mean, even the Fed knew that back in the 1960s and 70s, that base money was a, was a much more uh, complex topic. But, you know, the, the myth survives today, which is where the Greenspan put idea comes from, that the Fed is actually creating money. I mean, look, I, I get it. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet has skyrocketed over the last two months. We're talking about a trillion and a half in additional bank reserves in just eight weeks, which I mean, that's an increase, right? That's a massive increase. But what you don't get is the stuff that's going on in these shadows, which you don't see is the shadow stuff, which is subtracting from the system. So if the Fed is increasing its level of bank reserve, it's because of a hidden deficit or a hidden subtraction you don't see.
0: How is that, by the way, uh, this inflation of the, the balance sheet that happened over the last month and a half, two months, what does that look like compared to Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and what the Fed had to do then to kind of help things out?
1: Well, Ben Bernanke, uh, I think it was the first 10 weeks starting with, you know, the week of Lehman Brothers AIG. Ten weeks after that it was about 600 and some odd billion in increase in bank reserves. So Jay Powell is on pace to triple Ben Bernanke. But you got to remember, I mean, back then, 600 billion sounded like the end of the world. I mean, the Fed is money printing like, like mad. We've never seen anything like this. And it didn't work because we had another four months of great financial crisis or global financial crisis that followed it. I mean, it didn't matter how much bank reserve, because, again, it's not what you see on the Fed's balance sheet going up. It's what you don't see in the hidden private system going down. That's what right. ultimately matters. And so what Jay Powell has done, different from Ben Bernanke, is only the amount. He's doing all of the same things that didn't work in 2008, but just adding bigger amounts to them as if that was the problem. And the problem is again not what the Fed is doing, but what what the private system the hidden system is not doing
0: so what you're saying is essentially the five hundred billion that the, the 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 that that got put on this balance sheet can be used to as a proxy to understand how much damage or how much is being lost in this kind of shadow under you know uh, under the covers, kind of system, really, uh, and the Fed is able to find out how much that is and how much it needs to offset it by by going out and 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 intervening in the market uh, using these uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Basically, it's just a mirror of what's hidden. Yeah, right? it's not even that good because the Fed doesn't really have any idea. When you look at what the
1: Fed does, why do you think these are always in round numbers? If the Fed was trying to really offset the liquidity that's being destroyed in the hidden shadow money systems, they would try to offset it with real transactions. But that's not not how a central bank operates. The Fed has a list of stuff it will buy, and it buys in round numbers. It's just trying to do some stuff in in the hopes that people believe it's being effective. And they actually believe if you believe that they're being effective, then you'll do the Fed's work for them. It's, a, it's, it's supposed to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you feel like you shouldn't fight the Fed, if you feel like the Fed is injecting liquidity and you change your own behavior so that you don't sell an asset or, or you, know, you actually buy more assets because you think the situation has become less risky, that's what the Fed is trying to do. And that's why you see everything a central bank does is in round numbers. If they were actually trying to offset the, what's going on in the market, They would be taking orders. They would be taking sell orders. They would be doing things as the dynamic marketplace wants, but that's not what actually happens. But to your your original point, that's exactly the way you should think about this. The more the Fed has to do, the bigger the problem it must be in the hidden shadow system.
0: Exactly. Why did uh, repo rates spike uh, way out of control back in September with little to no effect on risk assets, whereas repo rates have completely collapsed during this past month's massive uh, risk sell-off?
1: Well, the first answer is what happened in September was sort of like a dress rehearsal. It was a benign, it was a benign event. It was not a credit event. It was not a market event. It was a, it was basically a technical quirk, uh, to put it that way. In other words, it was, it w- there was no wider implication because th- there was no transmission. There was no contagion. At the time, it was just um, a low-level liquidity where dealers kind of took a step back but they didn't alter their behavior in other kinds of markets. They didn't, you know, they didn't uh, strip liquidity out of the entire shadow system. It was just a very limited event. But what was important about that was that it was a, again, a dress rehearsal for when we would see a credit event like we did in March. So what you should have learned from September was that when, when things got bad, rather than dealers stepping in like we all expect them to and like they're supposed to, to provide liquidity to a system that's increasingly starved of it, they stepped further out. And that's the situation got out of control in a very narrow sense in just that part of the repo market back in September. And then when it happened again in March, they they did the same thing, but instead of stepping out of just this part of the repo market, they stepped out of every market. The whole old damn thing went crazy. So September was sort of a dress rehearsal where you saw dealers were actually risk averse in the exact same way they would become in March and April.
0: Got it. To see the repo uh, rate trade at nine and a half back. Nine and a half percent back in September made me think that all money markets were completely out of control, yet risk markets behaved quite well. I think that's partly explained with your answer just now, uh, where it was more of a technical glitch than it is a uh, kind of a broad market effect, right?
1: Right. And it wasn't being caused by, you know, dealers looking at the, you know, something bad and saying we're going to cut back on everything. It was just a, hey, we have a problem in the repo market, that spilled over into Fed funds, and actually the repo rate got up into double digits. Um, so it was it was a pretty substantial quirk, but it was nothing more than you know uh, it was nothing more than a uh, one off event in that in that respect. Okay.
0: Um, when does such a system start to break down or show weakness? Well,
1: <laughs> when you have a situation where uh, you know markets are sold every day. At, at rates that are historical or at levels that are historical, I think you're pretty clear that we're, we're starting to see problems. But no, I mean, the way to think about this is that there, there's, Ill, there's money supply issues, there's liquidity issues that are deep in the shadows that we don't always see. You know, And those were underlying back in February and March when you saw, for example, the, the, the oil curve go completely into contango, I believe in late February. Oil, the oil market is not just a, a market for the physical de- demand and supply of crude oil. There's also financing considerations. So not only did you have all the problems with the you know, oil markets trying to digest what was gonna happen in terms of the you know, lack of demand from the, the coronavirus shutdown, you also had financing considerations that completely changed and altered the way the curve was behaving. So you could tell in, you know, when those curves started to act and go haywire, it was an indication that the shadow problem was starting to break out into the more visible parts of the system. And obviously, if it gets to the point where it creates an, ad, an issue where the stock market is, uh, you know, experiences a complete downdraft and a complete route, then you know it's, it's really bad because it's, it's basically every market around the world where you have this systemic uh, weakness and, and illiquidity uh, becoming a, a huge issue. And it was even an issue in the treasury market itself which is the most liquid, the deepest market in the world, which is why treasury collateral is the most pristine form of collateral. But during certain periods in March, only parts of the treasury market were functioning. And it it pushed everybody into such a narrow corner that that's why you saw treasury bill yields fall. So, I mean, there's there's different ways you can look at, you know, like uh, a day like today and say, okay, the stock market thinks everything's fine. We don't see any visible signs of illiquidity and and dealer problems and and risk aversion. But there are still signals out there that suggest back in the shadows, we're still seeing systemic weakness. Right.
0: Okay. What are some of the signs of the system not functioning properly? I mean, is well, there a you way know, to tell? We just, we just kind of went over that
1: a little bit, but I mean, there are different things you can think of. Uh, you know, the way curves behave, for example, try, the yield curve. Uh, the yield curve right now is not a curve you would associate with things being functioning properly and normal. Uh, euro dollar futures curves money curves LIBOR spreads ted spread those kinds of things that all say hey you know jay powell created a trillion and a half of bank reserves in the last eight weeks why are inflation expectations more closely aligned with 2008 2009 with all this money printing why are why is the tips market uh, looking at long-run inflation expectations at crisis levels that's a sign that the, the bond market at least is not so sanguine about prospects for quote-unquote monetary stimulus or these bank reserves. Uh, so, you know, there's all sorts of places that you can look at where curves are showing you spreads, curves, all these things are saying, you know, yeah, we're not getting, you know, stock markets down by 5 and 10% on in, a in daily basis, but there are still underlying stresses that are
0: significant and they're at risk of breaking out all over again. See, to me, it uh, just as a side on the inflation side, it just seems... It um, seems like one of those things where we would get very complacent because, heck, we can keep printing and we're always somehow at 2% inflation in this country, um, that there's some detachment between the amount of liquidity provided and floating around the system and prices. It It almost seems like our measure of inflation is dysfunctional or something. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I would argue it's not
1: dysfunctional. I argue you're missing the shadow part of it. So you see the Fed's balance sheet go up and think that that will be inflationary because the Fed's printing money. When you look at the, shadow, look at the perspective from the shadow system, you realize that the, even if you believe the Fed is printing money, that more money is being destroyed in the shadow system than the Fed is creating. So there's an offset that you don't see, which is why you think we're missing inflation. And by the way, that's exactly what the global bond markets are saying. Lower, lower yields are a sign of tight money. Uh, I know that's, you know, Milton Friedman's famous interest rate fallacy because we're taught to associate it the other way around, that lower yields are stimulus, but lower bond, lower treasury market yields, uh, lower treasury, treasury notes and bond yields, you know, these are the most liquid safe instruments out there. So if people are hoarding the most liquid and safe instruments, what does that tell you about the actual liquidity system across the entire private hidden system that you don't see? When banks, you know, the big banks around the world are hoarding the safest, most liquid instruments, it's a, liquid, it's a sign of illiquidity. That's, that's what you get from the signal from the yield curve, for example. Mm-hmm. It tells you that during these times, there are malfunctions in the monetary system, and the Fed is not fixing them. The Fed is not money printing. Or if, the, if you want to believe bank reserves are money, then they're not getting out into the real economy. So, you, you know, what you're missing isn't the inflation. You're missing the shadow money system that sits in between the Fed and the real economy, which is, which is offsetting it, or you know, is much more
0: important in the way the economy and the monetary system actually works. Got it. Is there a way to monitor the stress on the repo system? Where can we see the number of fails or defaults? Well, fails is a good measure of a collateral side of things about how there are stress
1: in the in the system in terms of collateral, and you can find the number of fails. At the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York's website, they publish a bunch of statistics every week that are given to them from the primary dealers. So you have to realize that the fails that are being reported at at FRBNY are only what are being reported from the from the uh, bilateral repo trades that are that are conducted with the primary dealers. So it's a it's a snapshot and it's a proxy. It's not a complete picture of what's going on on the collateral side, but it's 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 a relatively decent one because when you see spikes fail as we did in March it does line up with our you know broader interpretation or a broader survey of liquidity problems in the in the hidden shadow parts. But other than that you know other than repo fails there are not a lot of statistics. Um, there are very few and, you, and even if the, the statistics we do have things like TIC for example the Treasury International Capital you kind of have to do some work to make them uh, make the, the 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 data understandable and relatable. But other than that um you know bond prices for example when you saw treasury yields uh, especially t bill yields go negative during the worst parts of the crisis in fact you could line up negative t bill rates with those days when the stock market had its worst liquidations so you can tell that you know if everybody's piled into the best form of collateral such that you know in asian trading uh, uh, you know the four-week t bill was yielding minus 20 basis points you know that's a pretty clear sign that there's a collateral problem and oh by the way you know, the next morning when repo transactions were being settled, you know, everything was sold. I mean, every market was in
0: fire sale mode.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, you spoke about the bottlenecks in the system in relation to, uh in relation or defaults or fails. How do you define that exactly?
1: It's, you know, again, it's all that complex calculations that go into how the repo market works on a normal basis that when, if, when, you know, we get out of a normal situation into a, a more of a crisis situation. And those things become questionable and unpredictable. For example, we're talking about securities lending with, you know, if you're borrowing treasuries from a, an insurance company through a dealer and all of a sudden the insurance company says, you know, I don't want to lend these treasuries at the same rate that I gave you yesterday. That creates a bottleneck because then you have to do something else. And it's not just you that I think that's the point that I, I need to, to, to emphasize here. If the insurance company is making its 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 treasuries less and less available on reasonable terms to you, it's doing the same thing to other people too that are in the same situation. And so it's, it's if if the amount of collateral that that insurance company and other insurance companies were in were adding to the system through securities lending becomes much less it herds everybody into the parts of the system that aren't being affected as much or the, or where there's more pristine collateral. So it creates a bottleneck effect where you change one of these parameters and everybody gets herded into, you know, for example, the treasury bill part of the curve or the treasury bill part of the collateral system. That's really what I mean by a bottleneck. It's all of these different places where potential trouble can pop up where the system can't easily absorb those changes because it's just, it's it's not a situation where it can respond in that kind of a way
0: right okay given the sheer notional value of these derivatives is the repo market currently the weakest link in the monetary system that's a you know that's an interesting question and you know for one
1: thing the repo market is very much linked to the derivative system especially uh, currency swaps and fx so i mean but that's true of everything. I mean, everything is interrelated. There's cross currents everywhere. There's 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 different uh, channels across all of these different markets. And that's how you know. That's how dealers work. That's how the modern monetary system is. There isn't just you know one repo market and it stands alone. There isn't just an FX market and it stands alone. There's there's interlinkages between all of these things. But I would you know I think I would agree with with the I think the proposition of the question here, especially on the collateral side. That is probably where the, the weakest link is. It's the idea that, you know, in 2016 and 2017, especially, a lot of really crappy collateral got uh, infected the system, and now it's in the process of being cleaned out. It's just, you know, you can't clean it out in an
0: uh, in a, in a unmessy or, or a tidy sort of way. Okay. Is the repo market regarded as regulated or unregulated? It is regulated and unregulated
1: <laughs> it's look there it's um depends on what we mean by regulated uh is it regulated in the same way as the depository system is regulated? No, not at all because it's a wholesale it's a wholesale function. There are regulations that apply to repo there are regulations that apply to how dealer banks uh, work in repo, but again, most of the repo that takes place is between you know is bilateral and bespoke so and especially if that bilateral bespoke repo transaction takes place between a bank located in the Cayman Islands or a subsidiary located in the Cayman Islands and one in Singapore, what regulations are we talking about? So in a lot of ways, yeah, it's regulated where it touches the daylight and it's unregulated where it takes place in the shadows. So where it's unregulated specifically in the shadows, what matters is whatever governance the bank itself or the two banks that are engaged in transactions Whatever, whatever their individual parameters are for their repo desk, for example, that's what really, that's how the system is regulated. It's almost self-regulated.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's like a pure form of capitalism, really. Uh, you're free to go do whatever you want as long as the two parties um, manage their own risk and, and, and take, take that risk, right? I mean, it's, it's really not a, a standard bank function, so to speak.
1: No, and that's exactly why this market got to be so big. And that's why it's basically offshore. Because when, the, when we started talking about the Euro dollar system growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know, we still remember in the 50s and 60s, we were the US system in particular was still under depression era regulation. And so there was the massive incentive to get out from under things like regulation Q in order to do what things that the you know, globalized economy needed to get done. And so you're right, Mar. It, it was a it was almost a wild west. As long as two banks were uh, you know willing to agree on terms, as long as those terms fell within the parameters set out by each individual bank's governance structure, then the transactions would take place, and you had entire markets develop around those kinds of things, because they were you know that's what the the, the
0: global system demanded. Right. Would it be fair to say that the first point of failure in the system, presuming uh, rehypoth. Re- rehypothecation would be if cash lenders needed to redeem the value of repledged collateral from the leader dealer bank but the dealer bank had already committed it elsewhere at that point in time
1: wow yeah you, see now you, that, you know no, that's that you're getting into the lehman brothers situation again because the situation where collateral is rehypothecated then you have you have issues about okay then what happens because what what that creates is a sort of a chain of liabilities that where it's not just a you know a question about one uh, one link in the chain. If you have a rehypothecation failure, for example, what happens to the rest of the links in the chain? And that's why you know for example you see repo fails on a, on just a normal nondescript week might be a hundred billion, because there's all sorts of things that happen, and the repo market has gotten to the point where it just you know that's just the the way the business is practiced. There are these things that happen. And, we accept a certain amount or a certain level of broken repo transactions to take place because the collateral side is just that fluid it just you know where does it become a problem you know what's what point does the level of rehypothecation breakdown become a problem you know we don't know you can't really say it's well 100 billion fails is normal but 150 is is a big problem we don't know exactly where that point is but we do know it's somewhere in there there's a certain level of dysfunction that is tolerated Simply because it's become standard practice, and then when that dysfunction becomes much more, it causes exponentially snowballing problems. Where you know it leads to a breakdown in one side or one thing that leads to three other breakdowns, at least nine other breakdowns, and and so on and so forth. And it's because there is no data, there's no statistics, or at least no good statistics, no real sunshine on this market. It's really difficult to tell where are these exact fault lines. Where do, where's the magic level where know uh, a September repo event that becomes a
0: March repo event yeah I see. Um, can you recommend any sources to go deeper into the subject? yeah there are, there are some. It's very scarce, it's
1: very limited, and most of it is um you know it's 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 uh, academic papers that are often difficult to understand. Uh, a lot of really dense material that doesn't really get outside of itself. And what I mean by that is, you'll see a paper from Manamun Singh, for example, who's a guy who did a lot of work in the repo market, especially in the aftermath of the crisis, on the collateral side. And I think he's really good, but he never associated his what he did in his repo work with the wider system, as it you know the the, the dollar system, the entire monetary system. It was, you know, it was, it was a very narrowly focused investigation, which was good, but uh there's no place where you can go and put all of these all of these things together and say okay here's here's the the modern euro dollar offshore monetary textbook that gives you all of these things all at once because again uh this is not something that um i mean central bankers don't even want you to know this thing exists which is why you know the term euro dollar is essentially forbidden at the federal reserve because you know uh, if you understand that there's much more going on in the monetary system then you also understand how little and how unimportant the central bank is. Yeah. The central, banks, the central banks have a vested interest in you thinking the exact opposite way. So officially, the stuff doesn't really exist, even though it is the thing that affects our daily lives more than anything else, you know, especially when it's dysfunctional. Um, but I will say that uh, myself, along with a, a small group of people, are working to rectify the situation. We're trying to come up with something we call Euro Dollar University, that aims to fill in a lot of these gaps. That you know, like the presentation we did last week about the repo collateral side, we want to give people uh, at least the framework of understanding the the way the real world works and a way to interpret all of these things, because it, it just it's not out there. Nobody nobody really is looking at the shadow money system because everybody is convinced Ben Bernanke and you know, Jay Powell they know what they're doing. And why why should we care? Because you don't fight the Fed.
0: Right. I mean it's uh it's kind of like what is the va- what is the real value of the dollar right it's a bit of a bit of an illusion i guess and it that the the whole system is predicated on us trusting that a dollar is worth a dollar whatever that is whatever that means to us uh and the fed is kind of uh, operating in the same way which makes sense um that was the last question that was pre submitted um yoda do we have Do we have any additional questions that uh, Jeff can address since we uh, Jeff was very efficient here?
2: We do. Can you point to a place to get the daily amount of repo fails? How can we follow it?
1: There is no daily amount. It's a weekly amount and it's published on the federal reserve bank of New York's website. It's uh, within their market statistics. So it's, it's available there and there's, there's also some other good statistics on primary dealers stuff that the, the dealers are doing too. Like, their net finance positions and dealer holdings and things like that that, that do relate to uh, what we can infer about collateral uh, situation in the system too. So if you go to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's website, look on the primary
2: dealer statistics, you'll see things like fails. Okay. So has the Fed now taken over the repo market and its functions that were historically done by banks between themselves and does that now mean that there's no trust between banks anymore because they don't trust the collateral even if it's a US treasury? No, I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, Jay Powell would love if you thought that. If he thought that you that the Fed
1: had, if you thought the Fed had taken over the repo market, that's exactly what he wants you to think. That's why they called the repo operations repo operations even though they don't touch the repo market. What the what the Fed's trying to do is make everybody complacent. Right? they were trying to get people to stop talking about repo back in September and October so they threw a bunch of repo operations out there in round numbers that you know essentially accomplished that for a limited time but you know to the wider question of the fed taking over the repo i mean the fed can't take over the repo market that's you know that's it's it's not it's it's never it's not even a possibility the fed is not going to bail out the repo market because the repo market is so much more complex dynamic and probably bigger than the fed could ever handle i mean the Fed doesn't support markets. It creates the illusion that it supports markets through limited transactions, limited transactions. That's the key point. So if it's, it's offering liquidity auctions that are called l- l- repo markets, it's, it's only doing, you know, it's, it's trying to visibly create the illusion of support.
2: As an ES trader, what are the most important repo metrics that I should be looking at? Yes, um, the uh, index, the S&P index
0: futures.
1: Well, there isn't much of a direct correlation between you know repo liquidity on a broad basis and the stock market. Uh, I think it's more about when you should be concerned where liquidity is so bad systemically that it engulfs the stock market too, like we saw in March or we saw at various points during the last 12 years. I mean, not just 2008 and 2009, but also you can think you know the downdraft in uh, 2015 and sixteen, for example. It was correlated to illiquidity in the shadow money system too. 2011 was another one, especially in July and August. The stock market tanked back then too, directly related to the repo market, including you know the Federal Reserve in, in August, early August 2011, was debating a repo a repo market activities. What it actually is implemented finally in 2019. So the idea is to get a general sense of what's going on and perhaps repo and collateral through things like the curves. You know treasury bill prices, for example, repo fails, those kinds of statistics, and then uh, you know associate through your own work and through your own level of understanding where that magic point is, where repo market dysfunction becomes broad market dysfunction. There's no, you know, there's no, it's not an on-off switch. There's no, nobody's ringing a bell. There's no you know, bright shining light. This number, when repo hits this number, it's all, it's going to go screwy. It's just, you know, it's a it's a very difficult association to make other than after the fact when it becomes obvious.
2: OK, so then what exactly are bank reserves and can't the banks just re- withdraw and spend that money? Well, all the bank reserves, is, you know,
1: Moret had it exactly right. It's a double accounting entry. So if a, in quantitative easing. when a a central bank buys a a, some what doesn't matter what security it is from the bank all they're doing is swapping that security for an increase in bank reserves on its on the central bank's balance sheet so theoretically what the central bank is hoping for is not that it's going to add money to the money supply is that it's going to encourage that bank to do something with its own balance sheet In other words hey you know you don't have this asset anymore for example the situation with mortgage bonds back in 2008 2009 the early quantitative easing programs took those quote unquote toxic waste bonds off the hands of central banks or off the hands of dealer banks and gave them bank reserves as a result. Not, to, not in the hopes that the, that the dealer bank would then spend that bank those bank reserves because you can't spend them, but that the dealer bank would be, assu- would be reassured by that transaction, but reassured that they don't have to worry about financing these risky positions anymore. And then would go out into the real economy and do other risky things in, uh, in response. So it's it's already a two-step process and it's actually much more complicated than that. So the what the Fed is really trying to do is create a situation where people perceive there being more liquidity and therefore act and do the Fed's work for it.
2: Does anything similar to the Euro dollar market exist using a non-USD based currency?
1: Yeah, the euro dollar market is a n- misnomer in a couple of different ways. Number one, it's not just in the dollar denomination. There is something called a Euro 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 yen. Uh, the term euro simply means offshore. And so it's really euro dollar is shorthand for an offshore currency market of all dom- denominations, or at least most of the major de- denominations, but primarily the U.S. dollar denomination because that's the, the global reserve. That's the, that's the denomination that everybody uses to transact in, on a global basis. So it's, it's really a, a currency market. It's really a bank-centered currency market of all kinds of stuff. And it's an exotic zoo of you know, transactions and liabilities
2: that float around all over the place. Okay. What does an implosion of the repo market aftermath look like? <laughs> it looks like March.
0: <laughs>
2: really? It
1: looks like, uh, yeah, that's what. It's what I mean? It looks like everything. Everything's being torn down, and uh, there's no way to stop it. It's. It's an. It's like an unstoppable destructive force.
0: Yeah, because once the first person starts selling significant amounts enough to cause the next person to have to cover then the next you have almost a cascading stop type of situation where all collateral is going through a fire sale to cover whatever is remaining uh whatever value is remaining within them right so there's just uh, this this almost unstoppable force there
1: And it gets to the point where you know it's not even the collateral that's being sold it's 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 risky positions that you can't fund in repo, because if you can't fund it in repo, then you either got to put your own cash in, which most levered players don't have, or you got to sell something. I mean, it's that simple. So it, it, you're right. It's, it's a cascade, but it's a, it's a sign of a very fragile system, because if you have, you know, the ball, the proverbial snowball rolling down the hill, that's a, that's, that's a frail system, not a, not a, a robust one.
2: Are there any correlations among the repo market credit problems and the Fed interest rate decisions?
1: I wouldn't say so. Uh, you know, you're talking about the federal funds, the you know IOER and the reverse, reverse repo uh, rate on the bottom. Um, no, again, because the, the what the what the Fed does in its interest rate decisions are more about signaling to you know the public and to business owners than it is anything with effective liquidity. Um, and the Fed increases interest rates. All it's really doing is it's not really affecting how how the repo market works. The repo market adjusts to whatever nominal level. It's it's a signal to consumers to spend less. It's a signal to invi- to businesses to invest less. And it's not a direct signal. It's 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 a it's a, it's it's a pretty stupid one if you if you ask me, because it's just you know the Fed trying to influence people's behavior from afar. And you're not just, and that's the point. You're not supposed to think about how that actually works. You're just supposed to do it. The Fed lowers interest rates. You're supposed to believe that's stimulus. Well, how is it stimulus? Don't care. Just act as if it is.
2: News today at 1349 Eastern, quote, New York Fed accepts 400 million of 400 million in bids at overnight repo. We had then a move down across all indices. Can we say that there's a correlation here? I don't think it's. I don't think you could establish
1: one that quickly, or, or what that would be, especially 400 million. 400 million isn't exactly a lot. Yeah, that's it a, could that's indicate a tiny
0: drop, isn't it? I mean, compared yeah, to the numbers it, these guys deal with.
1: And then it could indicate something, but you know, uh, it, it, there's not enough information in that one piece of uh, one piece of data alone to say that that's that's indicative of something bad. I mean, it could just be the uh, the fact that it was non-zero. Was it was somebody took it the wrong way or the right way for for all we know, where you know, know, again it's it's a sign of it's potential sign of a fragile situation where if four hundred million is causing the stock market to 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 have a little bit of angst, you know that that's not a good it's not a good sign as far as resilience and robustitude.
2: Okay, this is a long one I'm going to read. Um, Back in 1987, I was a fixed income bond registered rep. I had an account, uh, other may have also done this, who put MBS out on repo and then used the repo cash to buy more. This was done during the period for months prior to the stock market crash. If it was not for the cat crash, this city would have gone completely bankrupt. As it stands they lost over 80% of their cash money and they kept using more cash for this for the haircuts kept buying more TVAs to hopefully come out ahead. The stock market crash partially bailed them out with the subsequent bond rally. Question, is there any current structures or rules in place to prevent this from happening on a larger scale? No, and in fact, you know,
1: I'm not aware of that specific episode, but uh, I've I've heard some those kinds of things for years. Uh, that that you know, that's it's almost inherent or innate in the repo structure that people are going to cheat on collateral. Um, Solomon Brothers is a perfect example. In the early 1990s, Solomon Brothers was cheating on U.S. Treasury auctions to get as much pristine collateral as it could, to the point where it's you know. It, pardon my French, it, it pissed off the, the US Treasury Department because it was hoarding collateral at auction and nobody could figure out why they were doing this. And it got to the point where Solomon Brothers was gonna be shut down by the government. Unfortunately, Warren Buffett came in and bailed them out, but nobody could figure out why, why were they were cheating on collateral and the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve and all the alphabet soup of government agencies, regulators got involved. This is the early 90s. They got involved and they examined all of the books of the primary dealers and what they found was especially on the MBS side primary dealers were keeping two sets of books they were faking auction bids so that they would uh, they would get around auction limits so that they could take as much collateral as they possibly could and nobody could figure out why the hell they were doing this why were they risking their business why were they undertaking what was essentially fraud and it's in the government report they were keeping two two sets of books and the reason was because the repo market had ascended to a primary place in the wholesale system that was just then becoming uh, more of a, uh, of the dominant form of banking. So yeah, I mean, to the, the original question is that stuff still go on today? Of course it does. <laughs> That's okay, why we uh, keep seeing these breakdowns.
0: Yoda, we have five minutes left and I really wanted to ask this question. So we're, we're unfortunately going to have to cut it off here. There, there are more questions that have been submitted. Uh, some have even gone through the trouble to restate them. I'm sorry. Uh, but with the Fed, with the FOMC decision coming in tomorrow, with what has occurred in the last month or since the last meeting, with all the action that the Fed has ta- undertaken over the last few weeks, you as a as a macro guy, what what do you what do you expect for tomorrow? That's the first part of the question. Second you know, earnings have been coming out and some have been pretty decent relative to what was expected. How do you see, you know, Q2 playing out, getting us through to the end of June here? So first, what are your expectations of the Fed tomorrow uh, and, and how the market may respond? And then two, what are your expectations for Q2, given the current situation with the pandemic?
1: Well, taking the first one first, you know, what is the FOMC going to do tomorrow? It goes back to what we talked about earlier. The more the Fed does, the worse it probably is out in the real system. And the Fed, you know, I think what's going to happen tomorrow is basically nothing. They're not going to want to upset the apple cart. They're not going to implement or announce any kind of new style program because that would trigger the response of, well, okay, what, what's broken now? They have every every interest in trying to keep the situation calm, to keep everybody thinking that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, We've got the system in a very good state. Therefore, we can all bounce back really quickly once the, sh- once the economy starts to open up. So I don't think any kind of major announcement tomorrow fosters that narrative. I don't think any kind of major announcement um, is reassuring. In fact, I think it's the opposite, where if the Fed comes out and says, oh, my God, we got to do a bunch of stuff, people are going to, uh, you know, we're going to go back to March and think, well, much of stuff must be wrong. They have every interest in, in making everybody believe that there's nothing wrong. We fixed everything. Nothing to see here, move on with your life. So I don't expect much from them tomorrow other than to say uh, a bunch of disruption, things are bad, but we've got it covered. I think that's the message tomorrow. We've got it all covered. Um, this, as far as the second question, I mean, I don't think anybody knows what Q2 is going to look like, and I don't think it's really that important. I mean, it's important in the one sense that we want to know how far down is down, but what really matters is Q3 and Q4. How does the economy come back? Does it come? Does it come roaring back like, you know they keep trying. A lot of people are trying to say, like Jay Powell, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, over the weekend. I mean, th- there's a lot of optimism that on the on the upside of this thing, because there is going to be an upside. I mean, the economy is going to go is going to bounce back in the second half of the year, but that doesn't mean that it will bounce all the way back or bounce much of the way back. That's the real issue. What comes next? What's what's after the downturn? What's after this downdraft? You know, if if 30 million American workers are thrown out of work. And only 25 million get to go back, that's still a disaster. That's an epic disaster. Even though you could say, well, you know, jobs are plus 25 million from Q2. It's still, you know, unless 30 million get to go back, then it's 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 really it's a bad situation. And that's we've already got the indications from the labor market statistics where that's what's going on. I mean, in month of March alone, according to the BLS, you know, I think it was 1.6 million workers dropped out of the labor force. That's a suggestion that the people on a granular, on the ground level, see this economic situation is very different. That this is not something that's gonna be over quickly, that it's it's gonna create some long run problems.
0: That uh, sounds pretty ominous. We'll wrap up right here. Uh, Thanks so much, Jeff, for uh, taking the time today, taking an hour to take on uh, uh, these questions, by the way, we had three pages of questions, and we were only able to extract something from each kind of category out of uh, out of each page and covered, you know, just 20, uh, 20 21 questions out of probably 50 or 60. Uh, I, I want to thank you anyway for taking the time to share your expertise. If anybody wants to find uh, Jeff, uh, please visit, as you see on your screen here, Alhambra Investment Partners at alhambrapartners.com. I appreciate you coming in here, and thanks, Yoda, for uh, moderating, and thanks, everyone, for attending. Take care, everyone. Cheers.